throughout the Psalms we read that God upholds us with God's right arm. That is God's strong arm. And that is what this choir is. A strong arm for God upholding us all. And I thank you. The angels are dancing tonight. (laughs) There are so many thank yous. So many thank yous. You know the definition of hospitality is making space, making room for the stranger. I have never had such room made for me in my life. I thank you, Boston Avenue, for teaching me about hospitality. I have a list, A through H, of thank yous, and then we'll read scripture and we'll have a sermon. Like you, I struggle with incoming. I have way too much incoming in my life. I always respond to my beloved students and my colleagues. But you know those emails you get that you go, Yahoo! I am so glad to hear from her. It's Sherry Goodwin. Unbelievable. She makes things easy. She smooths a path in the rough places. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you. And these amazing sound men and cameramen, um, I'm very difficult to capture in sound. I'm not sure why. And they keep working every night. They're trying something different. And yet they go unsung. And so sound men, wherever you are, my deepest thanks. And this congregation's too. The Disciple Bible Study today fed me lunch. They gave me a basket. They gave me bread. They gave me grapes. And they gave me a beautiful hand-painted scarf that is silk. Robert read a setting to Psalm 23 and gave me a copy so I can play it and sing it at home. Every cookie and every cup of punch served, I thank you for. The Barton-Clinton-Gordy Committee, unbelievable, gracious welcome and knowing and loving of me so that I can serve your people, and I thank you for that. G is for Gail Biggs. <laughs> Every night, she's been repinning my hood so that tonight, for the first night, it's right. <laughs> and finally, moves on Biggs. This is the only church on earth where the people show up four nights in a row to hear preaching, where they admire preaching, where they value preaching, and I hold you personally responsible. Our text tonight is from James. Again, Dr. Diggs says you all know where to find it. It's James 3, but just in case there's some friends who are not members of Boston Avenue, it's on page 230 of the New Testament. I'll let you flip there. It'll take you a minute. We're going to read responsibly, so you really need to find it. Now they're leaning forward. I love the sound of those pages rustling in worship. Muson, doesn't it thrill you? People looking at their Bibles. I will read verse 1, and then I will ask you to respond with me. And we are going to end at verse 8. Verse 8 will be our final verse. Chapter 3, I'll begin at verse 1. You'll read verse 2, and we'll continue. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know 
that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Well, Lord, you've given us a difficult one tonight. And you are calling each one of us by name. Bless the words of my mouth, God, and the meditations of all of the hearts gathered here this night, that we may be worthy of your presence, and send the Holy Spirit to fill the gap wherever I leave a gap, because I am, as the text says, with mistakes myself. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a cloudy fall day. My four-year-old Henry, nephew Henry was clasping my hand between his two little hands. We were in the back seat of the car, and his mom was driving us to his school. Aunt Kay, I love you. Henry declaimed loudly, dramatically, ah, the drama of the four-year-old. I love you more than all the clouds in the sky, Aunt Kay. More than all the blades of grass, Aunt Kay and so on ad infinitum. And Kay, when I come home from school today, can we play, 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 play together? Of course, Henny Ben. When you come home from school today, we'll play, 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 play together. The entire drive to school was like that, a big old love-in in the back seat of the car. We arrive school, Henry and I continue holding hands, we walk through the big red school door, and then Henry spotted Zoe, a classmate. He dropped my hands like a hot coal, drew himself up into one part John Wayne and one part dirty hairy posture, and shouted, completely unprovoked, Zoe, you don't know. <laughs> Zoe didn't miss a beat. She adopted the same aggressive stance. In less than one second, she taunted right back at him, Henry, you don't know. In a matter of seconds, the four-year-old I loved, who had been an effusive, loving little boy in the backseat of a car, had turned into a character from the Lord of the Flies. <laughs> it is this situation the writer of James is concerned about. Though in the letter's entirety, the writer of James takes on a fistful of problems, like favoritism toward the rich. The problem of superiority, and this evening, the problem of an unrestrained tongue.
come. Overarching all these little problems, the writer of James is dealing with, well, it's a Greek word, and the Greek word is hyperaphania. Can you say that for me? I'm sure you know it from Dr. Biggs' preaching. <laughs> hyperaphania. A rough English translation is arrogance. A better translation? Zoe, you don't know. Henry, you don't know, with the implied, but I do. Gossip is like that. It's arrogance. It's about power. I know, and you don't. You can document this any evening at 6.30 on television, a show called Entertainment Tonight in which getting a scoop first is apparently a very wonderful thing. It may seem that you turn the television on for a delicious little morsel of gossip about that favorite movie star, but Mary Hart, the host, will correct your impulse every time by emphasizing over and over again, we have an E.T. exclusive for our viewers tonight. <laughs> it's not about information, it's about power. And here's the conundrum. Though ridding ourselves of gossip is as difficult as pulling up Bermuda grass by the root. I once started in my garden with a piece of Bermuda grass root and ended up in Kansas City. Though it's that difficult to pull gossip out of ourselves, unrooted from ourselves, participating in gossip is incredibly easy. And it can happen in an instant. It always does. Just like a hit-and-run accident. You're just standing there, an innocent bystander, on the golf course with a couple of buddies, or at Utica Square having lunch, then someone drops the code word. We all know the code word, say. The code word is typically followed immediately by three other words. Have you heard? The gossip is now hurtling towards you faster than a speeding train, and it cannot be stopped. Let's just say that you decided to subtract gossip from your life this Lent to make more room for God. I don't know about you, but I think it's very embarrassing when someone says to you, so what'd you give up for Lent this year? Gossip. <laughs> the year I did, and people asked me, it was always a sheepish moment when I thought, chocolate, tell them chocolate. I had a good friend call me several years ago, very, very long distance. None of you know this person, I assure you. She called me and said, Kaylin, yes, I'm calling because I feel like I just contaminated myself. Just like in Matthew, or is it in Mark, where it says you become impure not because of what you put in your stomach, but because of what comes out of your mouth. I just can't seem to stop myself, Kay, when it comes to a delicious morsel of gossip about my colleagues. And then afterward, I feel all contaminated. We nod our heads in recognition. Gossip is a hazardous substance. And it contaminates everyone 
in hearing range. I could use an amen right about now. When I was eight years old, my mom taught kindergarten in the same building in which I was in the third grade. My mom, who quite literally practically achieved omniscience in her lifetime on earth, overheard me speaking a curse word in the second floor girl's bathroom. I thought I was safe. My mom's classroom was on the first floor. I was blissfully unaware of this situation until mom said that night before supper, Kaylin, I need an appointment with you sometime at your convenience. <laughs> now, when my mother asked for an appointment with one of her three daughters, it meant she was going to speak to us about two things, character and deportment. Do you remember those old-fashioned words? So I told mom I was free right after supper. She said she too would be free then. We gathered at the dining room table for the summit meeting. Kaylin, I heard you use a word today in the girls' bathroom which did not reflect well on your character, nor did it reflect well on your family. Yes, Mom. Would you like to tell me anything about that word or why you used it? Sure, Mom, if I don't cuss, none of the cool kids at school will like me. <laughs> Mom said later, of the last thing she expected me to say, it was to admit that I'd completely given in to peer pressure. But she cleared her throat. She said she understood completely. But then until I was wise enough to govern my own tongue, and wise enough to choose better friends, she would do both for me. Then she suggested that that night for my nightly Bible reading, we read the Bible every night before bed, my mother advised me to glance through the Proverbs and see if there might there be a word of wisdom for my tongue. That's what the letter we call James is, really. It's just a wisdom text for its era. It reads almost like a book of virtues. And according to James, there's really good news and really bad news regarding the tongue. The good news? The tongue has virtually limitless power. The bad news? The tongue has virtually limitless power. The good news? The tongue can heal, teach, speak, and make peace. The bad news, the tongue can name, it can wound, it can abuse, and it can make war. The writer of James fires a mouthful of accusations against the negative power of the tongue today. As my mama would say, James is on a tirade. Strong winds are necessary to drive ships, but they're guided by a very small rudder. So too our bodies are guided by this disproportionately small tongue of ours. A great forest is set ablaze by a small spark, and the tongue is that spark. Consuming as a forest fire, an untamed source of deadly evil? Wow. I'm thinking the writer of James had some issues, and they are not unfamiliar to us. As church members, as pastors, as seminarians, parents, 
teens. Some days it seemed to me that the writer of James was the smartest of all epistle writers. Now, I'm sure this doesn't happen in any of your churches, especially not here. But back in the day when I was a pastor, I dreaded those days when one parishioner with one teensy-weensy bit of misinformation would start a forest fire of misinformation and distrust among the congregation. And here's a warning. Dante's Inferno has a special level of hell assigned to those who trade in misinformation. (laughs) Consider with me all the afternoons, hours, days, and nights that pastors, administrators, church staffs, as well as administrators of schools and hospitals and businesses, fill in the blank. Think of the time we all spend cleaning up detritus left by a forest fire begun by a careless spark from this powerful member of our time. When the damage doesn't stop at an institutional level, think of the wounds an untamed tongue, either a so-called friend's or a peer, has had on your children or your grandchildren. I have dressed the wounds that words have left in my goddaughters, quite literally a hole in their heart, left by someone's words. You know what Dr. Phil says about that? It takes 100 atta-girls or 100 atta-boys to correct for one toxic word abuse. Barbara Brown Taylor says that regarding the matter of mean-spirited words, Christians are no different from anyone else. Except, this is Barbara now, we've learned to be sneakier about it. (laughs) Ouch! We find ourselves saying, Barbara, don't say that about us. And yet we nod our head in agreement. The tongue is disproportionately powerful. Singer Bonnie Raitt puts it this way, and I love Bonnie Raitt. When I'm hurting, I have a dangerous tongue. I lose it, and I use it like a gun. The firepower of a tongue used like a gun explains why parents, step-parents, godparents, all of us spend hours, days, nights, and afternoons guiding the even smaller member of the tongue of children, that is. Some of you may actually be old enough, like I am, to remember the days when parents corrected offending young tongues by washing mouths out with Back in the 1950s, when my husband Joseph was growing up in the Bessler household, his mother employed a bar of ivory soap for mouth purifying purposes. Remember the jingle, so pure it floats. At any rate, as the youngest of seven children, my Joe saw enough ivory soap bubbles floating out of the mouths of his brothers. They served as a very powerful deterrent. And any of us who were raised in the South grew up with not only our mothers restraining our tongues 
and our aunts and our grandmothers and church ladies, but another kind of mother, this one from the animal world. Remember Thumper the rabbit's mother and her words of wisdom? Remember they always come like melted butter and honey? There, there, Thumper. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. That kind of attitude would pretty much kill politics today, wouldn't it? <laughs> and I'm only half kidding here. As it turns out, our parents' very well-intentioned efforts to have us say only nice things have been counterproductive in two ways. First, they taught us to keep our mouths shut, but they didn't teach us how to speak across chasms of difference with civility. And second, because we were not encouraged to encounter differences, we tend to mistrust difference when we bump into it. And all too often we respond with rejection or anger or gossip. With the best of intentions, our parents and grandparents taught us to keep our mouths shut, but it has left us a little bit lost on how to have civil discourse and honest disagreement with one another. Often things must be communicated that are not simply polite, they're not simply nice. Take the discipline of seminary students, for example. Critical reflection reveal sharp edges of difference in social location, presumptions, assumptions, and unacknowledged hermeneutics. And here's a bulletin to Thumper's mama. The cutting edges of critical thought, the sharp edges of difference, aren't necessarily nice, and they're especially not nice when justice is at stake. Remember the civil rights movement? Ah, yes, we can hear the writer of James weighing in. Critical thinking? Yes. Critical reflection? Yes. The pursuit of justice? Yes. Using your tongue like a gun? No. So what is the right and good use of this fantastic instrument God has given us? In last night's sermon, I suggested that Douglas John Hall, theologian, has pointed us in the right direction. When God wants to change the world, God adds a voice, your voice. We must use our voice for God's sake in the world. But we also must seek to govern our tongues in the process. I want to talk about two ways to govern, to monitor these powerful instruments God gave us to change the world. First, governance of the tongue quite counterintuitively depends on a listening heart. Complete attention. Listening. The teachers of spiritual formation say that the basis of all spiritual listening is complete attention. Heart, mind, soul, and strength, which develop our capacity to be God's voice in the world. 
My husband's favorite poet is the Irish poet Seamus Heaney. He comes to Tulsa every three or four years. He'll be here this spring. I encourage you to go hear him. He wrote an essay on governance of the tongue. And believe it or not, even though this story is about poetry, he rests the entire essay on Jesus with the story of the woman caught in adultery from the gospel attributed to John. And Seamus Heaney says, just as Jesus holds the attention of the crowds by tracing those figures in the dust, Christians must cultivate attentiveness by watching and by listening. Governance of the tongue does not begin with speaking, but with hearing and listening. The tongue, in fact, is at rest. The great philosopher Jürgen Habermas insists that all genuine conversation rests on the conviction in our hearts that we are open to being changed. Can the people say amen? Which means our tongue is at rest and our hearts are attentive listening with all our might. The second aspect of a well-governed tongue is that it is non-violent. I am issuing a call tonight to everyone in this room to lay down the violence of an ill-governed tongue. A well-governed tongue is an instrument of don't mishear me. Anger. Anger is a God-given, vital source to change the world. Feminist ethicist Beverly Harrison claims anger is God's source of energy for changing the world. Be angry, Bev Harrison says. Be angry at who's hungry tonight and shouldn't be hungry. Be angry. Change the world. But use your anger as energy, not Weapon. Use your anger as energy, not weapon. Like Nelson Mandela. Do you remember Nelson? A political prisoner of apartheid, imprisoned on Robben Island. He entered prison when he was 44 years old. He was freed when he was 71. Apartheid followed Nelson Mandela to Robben Island in prison. Indian and coloreds, as they were called under apartheid, Indian and colored prisoners were given larger portions of food every day, and they were given vegetables. Blacks were fed cornmeal porridge three times a day every day for 27 years. Indian and colored prisoners received khaki prison uniform pants, full-length pants, but blacks received khaki shorts because that's what little boys wore, and it was demeaning. Mandela's prison cell was so small, Mandela stretched out to sleep. His toes touched one end, and his head 
the other of his cell. He was given a straw mat to sleep on. Winters on Robben Island, the temperature hovers at 40 degrees, and it is damp all year long. Nelson Mandela writes in his autobiography of shivering entire months on a straw mat in shorts. Mandela's daily work assignment was crushing rocks, purposefully placed by the prison guards at the edge of the ocean in blinding sun. From sunup to sundown, he did hard physical labor, his eyes filled with dust and grit and the glare of the ocean. But that was nothing, Mandela claims in his autobiography. The cold, the hunger, and the brutality were nothing, Mandela wrote, compared to the anguish of enduring 21 years, denied even once. The right to touch his wife's hand. Or to see his children. In his autobiography, Mandela writes, In almost three decades in prison, my anger toward whites decreased. Whites are my fellow South Africans. I loved my enemies, but I despised the system that made us enemies of one another. When finally, after 27 years, Nelson Mandela was released from prison, I remember the day. It was a Sunday. We were on our way to church to worship. I sat in my car and I wept that it had happened in my lifetime. I didn't think it would. They released Mandela from Robben Island and the first words, the first words from that powerful tongue, friends, fellow South Africans, I greet you in the name of peace and freedom for all. The struggle was not over, Mandela writes. We would intensify the struggle, but we would walk together mile by mile, black and white. So, friends, there is good news and there is bad news about these disproportionately powerful and small tongues of ours. They have limitless power. Zoe, you don't know. Henry, you don't know. Or, friends, I greet you in the name of freedom and peace. Now that's a tongue the writer of James was writing and hoping and praying for, can the people say,